You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hello, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 vaccine and medical ethics. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Chris Feutner. He's the Director of Research for the Justin Michael Ingerman Center for Palliative Care at CHOP and holds the Stephen D. Handler Endowed Chair in Medical Ethics. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Katie. Happy to be here. So we aren't going to talk about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines in detail. We can save that for our infectious disease colleagues, but rather some of the ethical considerations around the development and distribution of this vaccine. We know that at the time of this recording, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for one vaccine, and others are likely not far behind. We know, though, that we won't have enough vaccines available immediately for everyone who wants one in this country. So, Dr. Feutner, how are advisory groups deciding who is high risk and should receive priority in immunizations given our limited supply initially? Katie, that's a great question and really deserves levels of an answer Mm -hmm. because what we're talking about are different phases according to how the advisory, the National Academy of Sciences and Medicine, the old IOM, when they wrote their report about how the U.S. should think about basically a fair and equitable system and effective of distributing the vaccines as they became available, they had a number of principles in mind to curb the epidemic by reducing essentially the mortality and morbidity that individuals affected by the disease are having, Mm -hmm. to control the epidemic so that the spread is checked and that we are able to start to come to grips with some of the secondary implications of this public health emergency on things like schooling, employment, and economic downturn. But they were also thinking about how to make sure that the overall process was equitable, that people who were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 epidemic were able to get immunized. So all of that went into the thought process. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that we need to think about as healthcare providers is that they did position healthcare providers and another group who truly are at the greatest risk, seniors, particularly those who are elderly living in nursing homes or any kind of congregate care facility where the majority, not quite the majority, but 40% of all the mortality has come from, that those two groups were going to be put at the essentially the front of the line to get the immunizations. Right. And the reasons are different. For the very elderly, it is because of what I just said, their exquisite vulnerability to not just the illness, but then really the consequences of becoming ill, death, and major morbidity. The healthcare workers, we are on the front line, and there's no doubt that because of that, we are exposed to people who have COVID. In the CHOP system, we have been fortunate to be guided by a dedicated group of people who have, through the PPE, 
the personal protective equipment that we have and all of the infection control policies. We have been lucky thus far to have remarkable little nosocomial or the spread of the virus from patients to our providers. Our data suggests that what we're mostly seeing is people becoming infected either in their home setting, when they're, they're out shopping, or when we let our guard down and maybe are talking to a colleague perhaps over lunch with the mask removed. Mm -hmm. So we are at risk, but the reason we still are at the front of that queue is because we're critical to taking care of the people who get ill. So we have this value to society of being able to be the first responders and basically run the healthcare enterprise. So those thoughts are things that we'll keep coming back to. Who is at risk? And who is really essential to take care of the people who are at greatest risk of morbidity and mortality? And those combination of thoughts are basically filtered into all of the thinking about how to do it, not only at CHOP, but at a national level. That's a really helpful distinction. I think based on that, I know what you're going to say to this, but I've heard some healthy healthcare providers say that they want to forfeit or delay getting their vaccine so that others who may be more high risk can get their vaccine first. Should individuals play these odds or should healthcare providers get the vaccine regardless of their individual risk for the public health benefit? Well, I want to just stop by honoring the impulse that people have to be generous, to be Mm self-sacrificing. And that comes through for people who have that point of view. I I totally get it and relate to it. Again, taking a step back might be helpful. So we're here to talk about the ethics of all of this. What is all of this? Well, we have the public health emergency of the illness, the morbidity, mortality, the secondary public well-being emergency of things I mentioned, like schooling, employment, economic downturn, etc., We have within our organization and across our society, we have a challenge of relationships, of historical legacy, of sense of disenfranchisement, of hierarchy, of power, of bias, of disparity. So we have a a set of relational and with that emotional challenges. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we have a huge logistic challenge of how on earth can you get all the people who need to get immunized, who want to be immunized, immunized in a timely manner. And for this vaccine, the two that are most likely to be one, as you mentioned, already authorized, the, the other one as well, soon to follow, requiring two doses. So it is a huge logistic undertaking. So again, the ethics are about the public health emergency, the relational set of issues that we have to do and issues of justice and equity. And then lastly, this logistic set of challenges. Mm -hmm. In totality, I think that the wisest choice for people who are healthcare providers is to realize that our individual contribution to this by sacrifice is probably not going to make a bit of a difference because of the logistic challenges of there are already all the vaccines that are being distributed well above our pay grade, if you will. I would counsel people, just take care of yourself because you can then take care of other people. You won't have to call out sick. You won't have to potentially get people that you love at home and care for ill. You can protect your potentially more fragile patients. Fortunately, we have not seen a lot of bad COVID illness in the pediatric age group, but it can happen. So you're protecting that. So I would counsel people, the wiser choice here is to just 
everybody get immunized who was willing to get immunized as quickly as we possibly can to start to curb the epidemic. And you mentioned the logistical challenges, which certainly are great with this. How is the U.S. ensuring that access to this vaccine is equitable? Well, I have to be honest. I think time will tell as to how well that occurs. Mm -hmm. One, the vaccine has not been distributed anywhere yet. The authorization, the emergency authorization, usage authorization is just coming through and it's not even been distributed yet. So right. a lot of that, again, this it's this concept of way above us and at any individual level is a huge distribution problem mm -hmm. of getting it out. And part of that is falling to local jurisdictions. What do I mean by that? In the city of Philadelphia, if you work in the city of Philadelphia, you reside in the city of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia's Department of Health is actually coordinating because they are receiving the vaccines and are distributing them to the hospitals, clinics, and healthcare workers as sort of phase one, right. as well as potentially these other sites of nursing homes. I have to admit, I know much less about what's going on there than I do what's going on in the healthcare distribution system. Sure. Outside of Philadelphia, and I think this is important for CHOP providers to know, it is the state, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Department of Public Health that is actually in charge of allocating and distributing the vaccine and vaccines soon to be. So this starts to get complicated. You can already hear like, okay, we got different cities and we're just talking about Philadelphia and the surrounding counties by the state. We're not talking about New Jersey. It's got its own distribution system. That's where I'm saying that hopefully the guidance that was published by the National Academy of Science and Medicine on an effective and equitable distribution system is actually being accounted for as people think, okay, where are we going to ship the vaccine? And then how do we distribute it? And then it's the last mile. It's like any other technology that is being distributed. How do you go from the vials being in their boxes, being in the freezer, to actually being administered to patients. Mm -hmm. It is a huge logistical undertaking. And one of the good pieces of news, I think, for people to hear is that the supply is coming online at a much quicker rate than we had worried about. I know everybody who is keen to become immunized may want it today, but we're talking probably about weeks, not months and months of timeline between the beginning of the immunization campaign, which is likely to be this coming week, and the completion within all of the employees at CHOP. So that timeline is something to keep in mind as you're thinking about, wow, that's great, and wow, that's an awful lot of immunizations to give. So how do we do that? It's a logistic challenge, every bit as much as it is an ethical challenge. I'm glad that's a logistic challenge that I don't have to tackle, and I appreciate how complex that all is. So far, we've been talking about adults and, and the vaccination, but we're both pediatricians, and people are asking a lot about kids and this vaccine. So what are some of the ethical considerations about including kids in vaccine trials? Well, I wouldn't want to pose as an expert on the details of research ethics for children, but in general... I think there are some big points here. Mm -hmm. One, whenever you're doing clinical research with children, they really have to have the prospect of benefit by participating. Mm -hmm. And you have to be 
pretty darn sure that the risk of harm is essentially nil, none, or minimal. Mm -hmm. When these trials began in the adult world back in the summer, we won, fortunately, although there are exceptions, painful, tragic exceptions, have observed that COVID-19 is much less severe in the pediatric population than in the adult population. And that meant that the upside ability of a vaccine to actually benefit children doesn't seem to be nearly as great as it would be for, you know, I'm in my late 50s, I could definitely benefit mm -hmm. because COVID could really hurt me. Right. Having said that, it's become clear with the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that we see in children that children can get lethal COVID, but at epidemiologic rates of that occurring being very, very, thank goodness, very, very low. Right. So they can benefit maybe, but to a, a small degree, thankfully, because the disease is fairly limited in the pediatric population. Right. On the other hand, maybe they are affected because of school closures and words about transmission, mm -hmm. that they're somehow facilitating transmission in the community. So they are being harmed. I do believe that remote learning, you know, thank goodness for all the teachers and educators who have managed to pull off the impossible of trying to go remote, but that is less than ideal. Mm -hmm. And getting back to in-class learning is certainly going to benefit many, many children. So it could be that ultimately children would benefit more by being protected against getting infected so that they can go back to their normal pre-COVID lives. Having said that, the other thing that is becoming clear is that these immunizations have remarkably safe as far as we know now, and we know quite a bit, there's been tens of thousands of people who have received these immunizations. The side effect profile is fairly limited right. and does not appear to pose much harm other than discomfort for a couple of, not even for days, but for like a day or two. Mm -hmm. Will we potentially see more as the vaccine is used more broadly? Probably. That's typically what happens with immunizations. But I wouldn't expect it to become dramatically or to the point where the calculus of whether it's greater benefit for older people than harm changes, that it's clearly more beneficial. Mm -hmm. For children, then, I think we're already seeing trials be expanded down to children the age of 12, and we may see it go lower. One thing that we also do not know is whether these immunizations prevent other people from getting infected. Right. This is a little bit complicated, but I get immunized and I'm protected myself. So if a parent was squeamish about getting immunized, I'd say, look, you're going to protect yourself or your child would be protected if they ultimately get approved. They will be healthier. Mm -hmm. And what we typically can say about an immunization, you will be protecting other people because mm -hmm. you won't be a vector. You won't be a infectious agent. That has not been as clearly established yet. Right. I don't think there's good reason to think that won't be the case, but it's another point that will come out as the trials and the studies of the effect of the vaccines are studied. If you immunize children, do they benefit and do they potentially benefit others by not being able to transmit the disease, then it becomes clear that not only should they be in trials, but perhaps they should also be 
the recipients of immunization. Right. And I think that point will be something as we learn more about how it impacts transmissibility that might play into whether or not we ultimately end up mandating this vaccine for schools, I imagine. Well, I'm going to carefully walk around the issue of (laughs) of mandate. At this point, there's reason to not push for any kind of mandate in either the adult realm or certainly in the pediatric realm. Mm -hmm. You want to have a very clear handle on benefit and risk before you start to think about mandates. And particularly because the mandate is telling somebody that you need to become immunized, I'm requiring you to do it so that you don't pose a hazard to other people. Mm -hmm. This transmittability issue needs to be clear before we would even think of a mandate. So that's a great point. And we might be getting ahead of ourselves talking about immunizations for kids. But let's go back to counseling families about the parents getting this vaccine. I think sometimes vaccine hesitancy comes from a distrust of our healthcare system. So what advice do you have for pediatricians who are counseling families that are hesitant about this vaccine and they're looking for some transparency from us? Well, again, I don't want to pose as an expert. I think our CHOP Center on Vaccine Education is really the the authority on how to think about this. But at a personal level, I find that it can be very helpful to speak quite honestly and quite concretely. I'm hoping I'll be able to say in a couple of weeks to a couple of months, I got immunized because I wanted to protect myself, but I really wanted to also protect my in-laws, my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law, and I wanted to protect my wife. So I got immunized. And I'm also thinking about how to make sure that my children wouldn't get infected from me bringing it home from, say, work, Mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't have to be in quarantine for 14 days. Right. So that's my reasoning. I do it to protect the people I love. That's great. I think sharing those personal anecdotes, too, are so important to our patient families, and they really appreciate hearing those messages from us. I think that it is a moment of a little bit of divulging a little bit of detail. It doesn't need to be too much, but it's more important that we are sharing the reasoning Mm -hmm. and the sense of duty that we have and the commitment, the advocacy for our children, for our loved ones that we're embodying. This is a way to protect people. I think that's a great place for us to end. And we understand that things with COVID in general and this vaccine are changing moment to moment. And so stay tuned for more information. Everyone should Keep up to date with the things that are coming out from the FDA and the CDC and your local institutions for current advice about what's happening. But we appreciate you shedding some light on some of the ethical considerations of this vaccine in this rapidly changing environment. So thanks for your thoughts today. Certainly. And thank you for having us and for having me on and us, meaning the general concepts of ethics, because I do think we're all trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And let's keep moving in that direction. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 